0: Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Today's guest is Catherine Dowling, the Chief Compliance Officer at Bitwise Asset Management, which is a crypto asset manager that is known for creating the world's largest crypto index fund. Catherine previously has worked in compliance at True Capital Management and Luminate Capital Partners. Before that, she spent a decade as an assistant U.S. attorney, most recently in the Economic Crimes Unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California. They always have really long titles for government names. (laughs) But with her experience in crypto, private equity, economic crimes as an attorney, I can't think of a better person to talk through all of what's going on right now in the crypto world between spot Bitcoin ETFs, the SEC, and of course, the ongoing Sam Bankman Freed Trial. Now that we are
1: all acquainted, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jacqueline. And so nice to see you again. And no, there's nothing to talk about because nothing <laughs> is going to in crypto right now. Just another week. Yeah. Maybe next week <laughs> there'll be more exciting stuff.
0: Hmm. Right. To start off, Catherine, can you kind of give a breakdown of what a CCO does and how does this job differ when it comes to crypto versus other roles you've had?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I am the general counsel and chief compliance officer for Bitwise Asset Management. And we also have an executive management team that runs the strategy, Mm -hmm. looks at products, etc. for Bitwise Asset Management. And I'm one of the five members of the executive management team. And what that means is we at Bitwise, we work with a lot of financial professionals. So RAs, financial advisors, those are our main sources of contact. And we are looking at ways we can bring crypto products to those financial advisors so that they can then bring them to their clients. So we're in constant touch with them. We create research products for them. And we are looking at new and better ways to offer products, including regulated products like Spot Bitcoin, which we've been in the in the battle. I guess we could call it a battle at this point for (laughs) that we that we can get that product out there, because obviously we and, and many others think this is a good product in a regulated wrapper to give folks, you know, safer exposure. It's a, you know, Bitcoin crypto risky asset, but compared to some of the other options that you know your retail investor could look at, this is a great option to provide diversification for those folks. So that's why we've been at it for a number of years. Our team has created core research that has been provided to the regulators over time. And, you know, we think we're getting closer and closer. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I
0: was going to ask, like, what's going on with the Bitwise spot Bitcoin ETF application? Do you feel like
1: there's hope? For for 2024, or it's going to be this year, I have great hopes for 2024, right? So it's on a, as you know, there are many filings out there that's, that's public, and we are working as our other filers with the SEC on trying to move towards that goal line. There have been a lot of obstacles in the way. Obviously, the grayscale lawsuit was, was a huge issue. I think because of that, there was maybe a, a, just a time period where you know, there was not a whole lot of dialogue with the regulator because they were in a litigative stance with, you know, one of the would be product offerers in the space. So the fact that we have resolution for that and that most recently they're not taking an appeal stance mm-hmm. is actually a great step forward. We're also seeing some movement on, you know, the SEC engaging on, you know, the S-1 front. So you've seen, you know, some filers come out with some amendments there. So that all suggests some forward motion. And we, we had some hints that there wasn't going to be an appeal. Mm. Remember the ancient news now of the government shutdown, right? It's like years ago <laughs> right. at this point. But um, at that juncture, we saw the SEC taking a lot of steps because during a government shutdown, and I've been through two of them, the SEC would have been down to a real bare bones staff, right? So we saw a lot of forward motion that actually advantaged the ETH Futures offerings. But we saw a lot of forward motion, them taking steps to make sure that if there was a government shutdown, they had taken some filing steps and they did a lot of stuff early that you know, might have been impacted had the government shutdown occurred we saw nothing on that appeal, right? And that was squarely right. in the time period. They were taking steps for calendar items in November, yet we weren't seeing anything on the appeal. You know, that plus mm-hmm. the fact that um, many of us in the space, having analyzed a lot of these denials and having looked at, read, and analyzed the court's uh, opinion and the hearing on that that led to that opinion, we didn't see that there was going to be a valid basis. So, as of Friday, they, they did not go ahead and appeal, and you know, now it's a what's next. But in that interim, we've seen a lot of forward motion with communications and the regulators moving forward. So that's all positive motion. I think we're looking at 2024 based on when we have some kind of next deadlines, if you will, on the 19 before process, which is mm-hmm. you know, the SEC can kind of move that out incrementally until they hit their maximum number of days to issue a decision in those situations. So I my spidey sense is that they're looking at January. <laughs> the crystal ball. Yeah. yeah. Just for uh, context for
0: the listeners, the SEC did not appeal its August court loss or the court ruling, however you want to look at it over Grayscale's application to convert its Bitcoin trust, GBTC, into a spot Bitcoin ETF. And that's what me and Catherine are talking about right now and what she kind of makes of it. But do you think that will become a spot Bitcoin ETF after this or it's just like they didn't get to it for whatever reason.
1: I posed the so now that we don't have the appeal. Right. Right. Yeah. I I think they will be part of the other filers. They have a GBTC, Grayscale, they have a slightly different stance than some of the other filers. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a difference in the technical process for getting their product out there compared to others because they already have a public class of shares right so they're already out there and those are trading so they don't have to go through this s1 process i won't go down that technical rabbit hole but suffice to say i think what we're hearing and what we're thinking and what we saw if we're going to compare it to eth futures is that the sec is trying to line up all the filers and get everybody the feedback they need so that they can move this product out but in a fair way and frankly having more filers at once is what's best if you're going to approve a product that is what's best for the investor because then they have a wide array of choices they can look at price they can look at reputation they can we you know hope look at folks like us who only do crypto you know that is not just our core but that's our mission so i think that would be the best stance for the investor if you're going to approve it line us up all at once so that the investor has the best opportunity to survey the offerings and go with what they think best fits their profile. Mm -hmm. You obviously used to
0: work for the government and now you work for a crypto asset firm. So I guess when you talk about the SEC and not you, but everyone, it's like there's a lot of hatred in the crypto community for them, unless they do something where they like get rid of like a well-known scammer, then everyone claps. But when it comes to regulating the industry, I feel like a lot of people have a lot of negative opinions towards the SEC. And I'm curious if you feel like they are overreaching, overstepping, or they're just doing their jobs. And if you've had conversations with them, what does that kind of look like?
1: So Jacqueline, such a good question. And, you know, mixed emotions and answers. First of all, you should find... Day, right. I worked very closely with the SEC. I was a federal prosecutor for 11 years. The last trial I worked on that I that end up going to the Supreme Court. We've talked about this before. That was with the SEC. That started with the SEC. So we had witnesses from the SEC. I know a lot of folks over there and they're dedicated hard workers. They want to do what's right. Yeah. But then there's also a question of you know, the leadership and what the mission of the current leadership is. And I think that in my estimation, there is a divergence between what the staff is trying to do and get right versus what they're being guided to work on and how to do that. And they they can't just do it in a vacuum. They need to have that, that leadership say, the time is right, et cetera, et cetera. You can move forward on this. For crypto? and For crypto. For crypto, right? Right. Uh, Well, and for other areas, too, this affects Mm -hmm. other areas. SEC has been very active in a number of areas, not just within crypto. You asked also about overstepping. I do think there's been some big oversteps with the current SEC. If you look at the mission of what is this agency supposed to accomplish, they have a big mission, it's super important, but they're not supposed to be making, they're supposed to be kind of applying, making rules. They're not supposed to be trying to kind of guide and shift what actual laws are or making new laws around it. So they can look at making new rules and getting public comment on that, but they can't overstep their jurisdiction and try to grab areas that maybe shouldn't be within their purview, right? Mm -hmm. They need to have more of a dialogue. And I just haven't seen much of an active dialogue or a willingness, as an example, with the CFTC. We have the leadership of the CFTC and the leadership of the SEC saying two different things. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's unique to our country. And There are many good reasons for that, and there are many reasons we would not change that. But it does make it much more difficult in our country to get towards new and better regulation or stance of who should be on first, who should be on second. Other countries don't have that same division. And, you know, it's a little easier, a lot easier for them to you know, look at a regulatory scheme and come to a decision on what makes sense or doesn't make sense. You know, in the U.S., we have different regulatory agencies that are supposed to be the niche specialists. And then we also obviously have Congress as well. And you're seeing a much more involved and active Congress. Right. And we had a lot of great forward motion. FTX obviously has impacted that drastically. We'll get to that, yeah. Unfortunately, it's raising its ugly head FTX. Right. So that took us many steps back, unfortunately, because we were on kind of, you know, a good pace to get towards some more regulatory clarity. I think there's a lot of positive motions, largely in the House Financial Services Committee, where we're getting some more momentum and pushing in the right direction. But we have so many different parties that it does become, you know, a bit of a bureaucratic morass to try to get to the right ending or even any ending, right? So I think that's part of the difficulty. So I think the SEC right now, they've taken a couple whacks. They were smooth sailing for a while and on the PR campaign. And now they've had a number of, you know, we've got the Grayscale decision, we have the Ripple decision. We've got a number of federal judges saying, hey, not so fast, guys. (laughs) So you're getting some good pushback. From the right audiences, right? I mean, we in the crypto industry can scream until we're, you know, red or blue in the face, name your color. But when we have other folks who this is their day job to look at what the law is and say, this is not what you say. It's not in law, your category. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. what it says. And we're here to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've also gotten some messaging going back to Congress saying, hey, you know, we could use some more laws in this in this regard. So I think we're pushing in the right direction. But we do have a lot of cooks in our United States kitchen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's, for every category, not just crypto. But- for every category. <laughs> On the front of the SEC overreaching, I'm glad you brought up the Ripple situation as well, because basically the judge ruled that the U.S. SEC can't appeal the Ripple Labs decision. And while it was like a partial victory for both sides, the fact that they can't appeal it is also pointing back to like the, hey, we've made our decision, stay in your lane, kind of. But how do you think these regulatory legal procedures, not just SEC, but... All of the cooks in the kitchen, as you said, are affecting the greater potential for US crypto legislation. Yeah.
1: And I think on the, you know, Ripple was huge. That was incredibly impactful and no interlocutory appeal. Mm -hmm. Down the line, they can appeal, but they're not letting them pull off parts of the case right now. And I thought that was a very well reasoned and as expected decision of the court. But with Ripple, this was a key example of the SEC hammer nail, right? Everything's a security, then they can control it, they can go after it for good and for bad, right? There are other areas, as you mentioned earlier, that you want them to go after. You don't want the SEC to sit on the bench and not go after really bad actors. But you don't want the SEC getting so active and so pro-enforcement That people are scared of their own shadow because businesses need to have a path to market. And right now, that path to market is not clear. no matter how much the current SEC wants to say, come in and talk to us, it's clear. It's not clear. And the current rules do not sufficiently allow for this type of product. They just don't. You know, the securities laws date back to, you know, depression era, right? So no one at that point was thinking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and many other innovations that have happened between then and now. Not that you need to go tabula rasa, you don't, but you can't be so heavy-handed or thick-headed that you don't allow some room around the edges and some flexibility for figuring out how you meet the businesses where they are. Mm-hmm. And that actually requires some rolling up the sleeves, it requires some deep thought, which is harder. It's like writing the paper versus taking a quick quiz, right? You want to write the paper. You've got to go do the research. You have to sit in the room and you have to have those conversations, be willing to have the conversations and be willing to think about it and talk to industry and try to come up with what makes the most sense. And right now, we don't have an SEC that's doing that. They're taking the, the quizzes and they're doing the quick enforcement actions. Yes, they're definitely going after some players that need going after, but they're also catching up the dolphins in the netting. And we need to make sure that, you know, let me carry this analogy further. Those dolphins, swim, <laughs> Jacqueline, right? Like, we don't. I know, I know. Caught up in the yeah. netting, Right. Like, we need to make sure that the dolphins don't, you know, swim over, and, right. you know, go do business in Europe, name your country outside the U.S. Because we are. Losing, we're losing that business. And that's bad on many levels, not just for the economy, but also bad because the more you move that business offshores, if you do have bad actors where U.S. citizens are, are getting impacted, it's just from a former federal prosecutor standpoint, having tried to do this, it's just much harder to capture that activity and get it back over here. So you're creating more troubles by turning a blind eye and not rolling up the sleeves and creating clear rules or being willing to switch some of the jurisdiction or not switch, but like look at is the CFTC the right regulator? Do you think the regulation or
0: impending regulation can help or hurt innovators in the crypto space long term?
1: Help, 100% help, 100% help. Mm -hmm. The wrong regulation will not, right? If you have regulation that is coming from yeah, There are two bad places the regulation come from. One, it could come from the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who just want crypto to go away. Two, it can come from folks who maybe even well-meaning, but don't necessarily understand how the businesses need to operate. So then you can get regulation from a bad space when you have either or both of those together. Regulation that comes from a good space has that foundational understanding and has done the work to get that foundational understanding of how the businesses work and do something in between. Meet them where they are, not all the way, right? there are outlier businesses that we're just not going to be able to accommodate. Those crypto businesses are going to have to have their own flexibility. They can't have it all right. But for the overall market, getting regulation that makes sense is much better because that more readily allows institutions to come in and invest in the space because they have a whole client base where they have made a contractual promise to that client base to do what's best for those clients, like you know, get into all aspects of fiduciary analysis and whatnot. They have to make sure that these products are safe and suitable. Mm-hmm. When you get into those territories, a lot of what's available right now is just not available to the institutional investor. And that's why things like spot Bitcoin in an ETF wrapper, that makes sense. And it's something that you know, they can more safely offer to their client base because it's regulated, because it's more institutional. I've also heard you talk in
0: the past about how stable coins are a good starting point when it comes to legislation. Do you still feel like stable coins are the easiest place to start when it comes to that? Or is it the spot Bitcoin ETFs or another product or crypto sector that I have not brought up yet?
1: <laughs> I think both. I still maintain that's a great starting point. Again, Without FDX, I think we would have already been there, frankly. I think that was the line in the sand that that set us back from a regulatory standpoint. But I'm still hopeful that we can move forward at least on stablecoin. And that would be a good starter to get into the larger market structure issues that many within Congress have been grappling with and trying to attack from different areas, aspects or, or backgrounds. Totally understandable.
0: Catherine, thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break before we get into the rapid fire. And we're back. Now is time for our rapid fire segment where Catherine will answer some of the questions I have. Quick short answers, you know, nothing too crazy. But to start off, what do you think are the three key most important factors to consider when it comes to a crypto company
1: creating compliance? (laughs) It seems silly, but (laughs) I think it's important. Absolutely. And this is part of that, you know, path to market we were talking about. One, in this environment, the commingling of funds, like just make sure you have those internal controls down and operational. Two, it's looking at conflicts of interest. Do you have any conflicts of interest internally with external parties? And just you can't get rid of them entirely, perhaps, but disclose them, be aware of them, and try to create some walls around them. Mm -hmm. And then three, good intentions are all well and good, but you need to have a process and you need to document that process. So documenting your process and being intentional and careful in your approach. I think if there is a misstep down the line... Showing that you thought about it and you thought, where are your risks, where are your issues, and you document and you follow a process is 90% of the case for you. Okay. Do you think stricter regulation will make it difficult
0: for U.S. crypto companies to survive, yes or no?
1: Depends. <laughs> okay. From what we talked about before, whether it's... Who's it coming from? Who's creating that stricter regulation? Have they done their homework? Do they understand how the business work? Or are they coming at it because they're crypto killers? Like, which direction is it coming from is important. Right. I like I like how you picked your own answer. I'll do yes, no or depends in the future.
0: (laughs) Who do you think is the biggest champion in Congress right now for crypto
1: and what about its biggest skeptic? In Congress for crypto, I think House Financial Services Committee. So McHenry, Hill doing great work. Emmer. sorry to give multiple answers, but I think Torres. No, it's <laughs> good. Name <them>. There's like <laughs> having, as we talked about, having been to some of these congressional hearings and hearing who is who's thinking about it and doing the work. They're doing the work. They're thinking about it, they're meeting with folks, they're getting knowledgeable, and they're thinking, they're rolling up their sleeves, and that's what we need. Mm -hmm. And there are folks on both sides of the aisle. This is not, you know, partisan does not have to be partisan. And it's important Mm -hmm. that it continues and that folks in the industry go and have educational conversations and continue that dialogue. The more they learn about our businesses, the better they can help. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of
0: percentages, I did not mean to make that segue, but it worked. We talked about Bitcoin spot ETFs, like approvals were impending 2024, zero being no chance, 100% being full chance, like it's going to happen. What percentage do you think we will get a spot Bitcoin ETF by the end of this year?
1: By the end of this year, I'm a 2024 person on. So zero? well, <laughs> I don't want to be so black.
0: Okay, come on. we can going to go yet. with,
1: you know, I'll go with 10% end of the year. But my uh, my thought, my gut is really that it's a 2024. Just I just know a lot of the work that has to be done to do it right and getting the disclosures right and doing what's right for the investor protection side, the knowledge base, etc. So I'm more of a 2024, but I'll take the 10% just to not be zero. Yeah, it's also like mid-October.
0: Imagining this is going to be improved in like two and a half months is (laughs) wishful thinking, for sure. (laughs) So that's the end of the rapid fire segment. But we touched quite a bit on regulation and crypto. And you even talked about FTX. So you were already, you know, reading the tea leaves ahead of what I was going to talk to you about. But for the last segment of this, I want to shift gears a little. And I've been closely covering the SBF trial. I'm sure you've been paying attention as well. I'm curious how you think the FTX collapse and this trial is going to affect possible legislation. Legislation and regulation in the US?
1: So I believe FTX is already baked in. There might be some outlier facts here and there that will come out during the trial, but the big bombs I think have already exploded and that's already baked in. So Mm-hmm. Thankfully, and good, we have that and we can use that. We, we would rather it not happen, Jacqueline, but since it has happened, right. it's a learning <laughs> experience. We use that and we do make that part of the foundation I've been talking about with getting the right regulation. But the trial, more generally, people are on some level looking at this as, okay, it's fraud. It's, it's very fraudy. Mm-hmm. Also, if you really back up, it's fraud that could have been prevented. First of all, it's old-fashioned fraud. It's not just crypto. It's fraud that happened in crypto. It's also fraud that could have been avoided had we actually put some regulations in place several years ago and not ignored this as something that, you know, may or may not continue years ahead. Part of the reason that this company was operating offshores was because there weren't the regulations in place. They couldn't do what they want to do here. And it would have been most likely caught a lot earlier had they been beholden to more of the the U.S. laws and regulatory scheme, I Mm -hmm. believe.
0: Do you think there's any U.S. regulation that if it did get implemented onto FTX, it could have stopped the situation or no, because it was overseas?
1: So one of the things that would have helped, right? Like, look, you get a group of people together that are going to be lying about things and falsifying records and providing proof. That's just it's hard for external parties to note and to realize. Right. I think part of what made it harder to catch maybe from third parties that would be gatekeepers is because they had so many complicated structures and flows because of this offshore aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that had it been onshores, I think the structure would have been a bit more simplified and it might have been a little easier for third parties to catch. The other complexity is a psychological one. And having been in the courtroom and in other settings with folks accused of financial crimes, Sam Bankman-Fried, has this, he has the same aspect that I've seen in other folks. He actually had himself convinced that this short term, what he was doing, or in telling colleagues to do, and what his colleagues were doing, was for this ultimate greater good. That doesn't excuse it. Yeah. absolutely doesn't. I think, yeah, I think he really does believe that. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I mean, you saw it with you know, the Theranos mm-hmm. case as well, right? So I think we see him testify because one, they probably have nothing to lose in doing that. There are definitely things to lose if he lies on the stand. <laughs> I've been saying the same thing. Yeah, you yeah. have got to put him on the stand. Yeah, because. He is his best witness to show why he thought that this was okay, right? Again, it's not okay. Can't underscore that enough. But I've seen this psychology before in cases that I've prosecuted and Folks I've talked to where they, they think, okay, if we can just move the shells, get the money back, exactly, yeah. everyone will be better off long term because what I'm creating here mm-hmm. is for the greater good. And this isn't, again, not unique to crypto. There are many other types of frauds that you, you've seen this made off, you know, yeah. probably felt somewhat the same way. Okay, so this, that's kind of the basis of the Ponzi scheme, right? As long as everybody keeps playing the game, everybody's happy and similarly he was donating you know putting his name on things so you're getting that almost that Robin Hood aspect. And I, I had other criminal defendants that had that the same phenomenon, right? They were like denizens of their, you know, their counties and communities because they were big donors and whatnot. So it's an interesting aspect. So I think we'll mm-hmm. see more of that play out in the trial. But it's this inner circle and the cooperators within such a tight inner circle is quite unusual, right? You you have cooperators in many other yeah. instances, obviously. But to have them be so close, both operationally and from a friend, from relationship. This is an unusual set of circumstances. So I think he's got to testify yeah. because there's just going to be so much damning evidence. There already is. He's got to nothing. testify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I think people will be watching that. You know, we got a little bit of a precursor when he was doing some interviews before he stopped talking. But, you know, he did do several interviews and all of us, my former prosecutor friends were like, oh my God, he's still out there talking. I'm like, where's his lawyer in this? Right. Yeah, he's he's still talking.
0: Yeah. And he's also he's not really talking right now unless it's like to his lawyers with some post-it notes or during the break. Actually, at one point, and I don't know if this is in the transcripts, but while I was there, his defense team was trying to argue that, hey, not all of our investments were risky because look at our anthropic one. I think they invested about 93 million and it ended up being worth a billion dollars. And the judge basically was like, I don't care what it's worth. He's like, if I went to the Federal Reserve and I stole a bunch of money and then I bought a bunch of Powerball tickets and I won the Powerball, does that make it okay?" And everyone was like, oh. You know, because like it's very clear that, like, no matter how you do fraud, even if you think in the end that it's okay if you're going to repay them, which they didn't, it's just not acceptable. It's It's other people's
1: money at the end of the day. Right. I had a criminal defendant who. I think he had he donated probably 80% of the money he was taking from the company he worked for. So, right. So, yeah, great. Great, yeah.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And this part of the trial is focused on alleged fraud. I gotta say alleged, you know. But it's not the political charges. That will come in March 2024 when they do another trial for SBF. Do you think anything on that front will kind of, like, change the landscape? I know you said it's kind of baked in already, but I'm curious if, like, a lot comes to light there, will it kind of shift the dynamics or we're going to have to wait and see? I don't
1: think it will. Again, I still think that's also baked in. You already have multiple members of Congress that have stated, we'll give it back. They were no more aware of the bad actor aspect of FTX than the folks whose money was being taken, right? Like people were swindled 100 percent. And I think Mm -hmm. they're also in that category. And I think their intentions were good. And like, we, we know how politics work. People donate all the time you know, public information channels so that we try to make sure that that's transparent. But the intentions were to understand businesses and the the swaying of politicians is old news at this point. And I think, again, the intentions were were good of those members of Congress. And they've all, Mm -hmm. most of them, I think, have come out and said money goes back. And so I think it's baked in with that news.
0: Catherine, this has been wonderful. Can you leave us with a piece of advice, maybe something that you keep with you as you work in this industry?
1: Yeah, well, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the human aspects. And I think just getting in the same room with folks and rolling up sleeves and brainstorming, like there's nothing more rewarding or refreshing. And I think that's something that, you know, the industry could use and it would be incredibly valuable, right? Like we talked a little bit earlier about social media and everything. You know, it's so easy just to kind of write things and put a quip out there. But the hard work is the work that the industry, Congress, cetera, that we need to do. And we you need to do that together and we can make it interesting and we can make it just better for the whole crypto ecosystem by helping folks understand the businesses and getting to where we need to be and just getting a regulatory environment that makes a lot more sense than the current environment, which has so much lack of clarity that folks are struggling businesses are struggling both young medium and older businesses on how they move forward and keep on the the correct side of the law which by the way the vast majority of businesses that's their goal as it should be yeah let's help them on that goal definitely
0: (laughs) awesome perfect Catherine. thank you so much again for joining us today it was absolute pleasure thanks my pleasure jacqueline thank you so much We'll be back next week with conversations around what's going on in the wild world of Web3 with top players in the crypto ecosystem. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Jacqueline Melanick, and produced by Maggie Stamets, with assistance from Yashad Kulkarni and editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks for listening in. See you next time.